Jesus, we are so grateful that you are here. And we turn our hearts and lives consciously to you. We fix our eyes on you. Everything else that goes on here this evening, anything I say, any song that's sung, sung any conversation that's had, means nothing. Unless you are in our midst and you are acting and you're achieving your purposes. And Lord, that's our confession. You are here and you're at work and you're speaking. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive. In your name we pray. I just want to go back to those those three announcements that Scotty gave. Hey, I just think all of those things are awesome. Ellie is a good friend of mine. She's just such a great person. I'm so stoked that she's going to be coming here and really great to be backing her. The Soul Tour thing, I haven't personally done it, but I know lots of people in Ngatiawa have. Really, really cool thing. And so excited to hear about this possibility of a little haven of prayer. That's that's. That's got to be a God thing from my perspective, so go for it, guys. It's awesome. So I, I'm perhaps I want, what I'd like to hear from you first is what I understand Mark was here last week, and I'd like to hear from you what you took away from Mark. What, what things kind of you, you know, as you're here today, can you remember that kind of struck you or that worthwhile? Thanks. Faith. 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 Yeah, it's believe. Believe. Right. Yep. Sorry, I'm a bit deaf, so you might just have to say it a few times. Anything else? Yes? Um, remembering how that God has answered our prayers before. And okay. so he will again, because right. he's faithful. Right, okay. So let's remember the story of God at work in our lives already, and keep telling that story, and basing our going forward on that. Yeah, any other things? Persistence in prayer. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. A picture I took away was um, he's talking about maybe the things we're praying for might be like a tree where we can do it by ourselves, but it's going to take a long time. Or in other cases, maybe what we're praying for is like a big boulder that we can't lift it by ourselves. We need a lot of people mm. to get involved. Right. Yep. Cool. Awesome. Any other things before we roll on? Friendly. Friendly. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Nah. It's good to be yeah. friendly. God's friendly to us, isn't he? Okay. Well, what I'm going to try to do tonight makes me feel like I grew up in Gisborne, and I've, I vividly remember being a kid, maybe, you know, kind of 10, 11, 12, standing on the beach, looking out across the Pacific Ocean and trying to just think about this ocean that stretched thousands of miles to the east and to the south and to the north and just thought about how incredibly vast this is. 
how massive and you know how many fish there were and how many plankton there were and how many seaweeds and probably also junk but you know this this massive ocean and these billions and billions and billions of gallons and billions and billions of it was gallons in those days billions and billions of molecules like uncountable and when when I start to talk about prayer it feels like I'm standing like that kid on the edge of the beach in this unbelievably massive ocean and all we're going to do tonight at the very best is maybe paddle our feet a couple of steps in okay so I, I, there are so many things that we can talk about that I'm not going to talk about for example uh, one part of me thought maybe I should be speaking about Sabbath and about fasting Maybe those are two contemplative disciplines that would be really good to speak about. I'm not going to, but actually, I kind of tempted to. Because I think for us, for our generation, those two disciplines, those practices of disengagement, of taking our hands off, of realising how useless we are, how little we are actually in control of ourselves, are incredibly important because we live in a, in a world which tells us we are and need to be in control and make things happen. And I'm not going to be talking about centering prayer or the Jesus prayer or praying the labyrinth or desert prayer or whole lots of other things that we could talk about. I'm just not going to go there. So you may feel like I'd just like to know about this. You may be disappointed. I'm real sorry about that. <laughs> now 1971. How many of you remember 1971? <laughs> Thank you Jonathan. Oh yes. <laughs> In 1971 you can work out my age now. I was 17 at the end of the year. And in that year, I had started to call myself a Christian. I'd been at a camp earlier in the year, and I started to call myself a Christian. I'd grown up in a, in a Presbyterian home. And, um, but, you know, as that year had gone on, I just felt this longing in me, and this realisation that I can't love. When I read about Jesus, when I read in the Gospels, I can't love like Jesus loved, and like he called me love. So there was this kind of ache in me, that I would be able to love. And just before Christmas that year, I met some people who, to my eyes, like love was flowing out of them, it was pouring out of them. And I said, what they've got, that's what I want. I knew what they had was what I wanted. They started talking to me about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I'm going, you know, I'm like a good Presbyterian boy, and I've never heard of this, this sort of talk. But a, a while before, somebody had given me a book called The Cross and the Switchblade. Anybody know The Cross and the Switchblade? Yeah. That night, I had that book. That night, I went home and I read it. Well, that afternoon, and I read it right through. Boom, straight through. And I thought, okay, okay, this is what I want. I got down on my knees in my bedroom that night, and I said, God, please baptise me with your Holy Spirit. And I honestly felt a physical sensation come onto my head. And I went, no, no. I was too freaked out by this, what I immediately experienced. And so I just said no to God. But then uh, a week later, it was Boxing Day, I met up with these people again and I said, look, and I told them my story and said, I want, I want what you want, what you've got. I said, okay. And they explained the scriptures to me and they prayed for me. And I had this very powerful, long-lasting, it was probably two hours or three hours experience of God. It was just like, like I kept nothing I've ever experienced before that. And that experience has been utterly, utterly profound and transformative in my life. 
it taught me that to meet God is not a, an intellectual thing. It's not a, 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 an analytical thing. It's not a, even just something we do. It is an encounter. To encounter the living God rips our life up. To encounter the living God changes everything. And so for me, from that day, the idea that prayer should be an encounter is utterly fundamental. It's utterly fundamental. However, that understanding is also problematic. It also causes us problems. Because what happens, what happened to me, and what I see happen to other people, is that we, we then equate good prayer with particular experiences or feelings. We say encounter equals right feelings. And that's a big problem. It's a problem, see, in our Western society, there was a, there was a philosophical movement called Romanticism. And we're not going to unpack Romanticism at the moment, it's a big thing to unpack, but one of the, one of the very reduced ways that we could say about Romanticism, that they say, Romanticism says that feelings are defining. What you feel is what is. So, if we get that, that's in our culture, that happens in our culture, we, I mean, if you think about it, that's how people operate all the time. This is how I feel, so that's what reality is. When we get that mixed up with this idea of encounter, then we, we are in the situation of looking for feelings when we pray. Big problem. We have this idea that somehow when we pray there's going to be this kind of spontaneous flow out of our hearts to God and a spontaneous flow of God back to us. And when we don't experience that, we go, nah, don't work. Give that one away. There's another thing that happens, I think, in our culture that is, is a challenge for prayer as well, and that is that we, we have these pressures on our own hearts inside us. We experience this kind of pressures that things need to be different. Somehow, this is not right. Something, something's got to change here. And then we have the pressures of our culture that are pushing on us and saying, this is how life should be. And our, our culture is, we all know, we all talk about this, our culture is consumerist and entertainment orientated. And so these things press on us and we feel anxiety in our lives. We feel fears in our lives. We feel um, boredom sometimes. We feel like things are just not right inside us and on the outside. And we then, because if we are in the Christian context, think, what we need to do is pray. Pray, to pray, is the means to sort out this stuff, this pressure that I'm feeling, this anxiety, this fear, this trouble that's going on in my life. But then again, we try it. And it doesn't work. We try prayer. Because why we try prayer is to resolve the pressure, the troubles, the difficulties. And when it doesn't work, we give it up. Maybe feeling vaguely guilty that because we're Christians we should be praying, right? So underneath those two problems, that feeling problem 
And that, that kind of pressure that comes on us is a more fundamental one. This is the theological bit that, sorry, I gotta do it. <laughs> Underneath all of this, the most fundamental problem is that humans are under the power of sin. Humans in our sinful state. Now, remember, listen to me, I didn't say humans, you and me, have done some wrong things. I didn't say that. I'm not talking about the wrong things we did. I'm talking about the power of sin that dominates our lives. In fact, it says in Romans that we are slaves to the power of sin. And that means that we are turned in on ourselves. That's how Luther put it. We turned in on ourselves. And that means we cut off from God. But we're created actually to connect with God, to have communion with God. And so we're constantly trying to find ways, whether it's towards God or some other way, to get that access, to get that connection, to get that communion. However, the sense that we can make and control our own direct access to God is fatally flawed. The sense that we can make have our own direct access to God is fatally flawed. It's actually the way of paganism. The pagan approach to God is that we can control this. We can make this happen. We can get God to do what we want God to do. And we do that. Actually, every human in one way or another does that. Every human is looking for that sense of transcendence, that sense of fulfilment, that sense of something much bigger than who they are. Because we've been created like that. It's in us to connect with God. But the, the sin that dominates the human race, the sin that controls us, turns us in on ourselves. So our created need for communion with God is twisted, it's distorted. And our hearts actually become idol factories. We are persuaded that we can find our own way to God. We can, if we just get it right, if we just learn the formula, if we just get the correct technique, if we just say the right words, we're going to get access to God. But what is actually happening then is that our hearts, which are idol factories, are creating a God in our own image. A God that is accessible to us. A God that we can control within. But just to say it, makes it so obvious that that is nonsense, right? Does that sound nonsense to you? But that actually is what goes on in us. Now this is the scripture. I'm not going to spend a long time more on this, but it's very, very important. Ephesians says, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 to chapter 2, it is through Christ, through Christ, that we have access in the one spirit to the Father. There is, as Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now we know this in our heads, but the point about this is, is that unless we are by the Spirit caught up in Christ, the, the, we cannot come into the presence of the Father. We do not have access to the Father. So, there is encounter. Encounter is crucial in prayer. 
We should expect nothing less. That's the way God has created us, to have actual personal engagement with the living God. But it is not at our disposal. It is not under our control. It is not something that we can create and manage. It is something that comes to us by the Spirit in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us. You know, when I told you my story about what happened to me on that Boxing Day in 1971, I told you my experience. But what I didn't focus on was the fact that God was at work preparing my heart. God was at work bringing these people into my life. God was at work in the explanation of the scriptures to me that enabled my heart to be turned toward him and opened to him. It was God himself who took the initiative and worked in my life. See, that's the crucial issue. Not me and the experience I had. The crucial issue is that God acted. This is... This is the God that we are here meeting with tonight. One of the great American writers, Annie Dillard, talks about the fact she never understands why people go to church in her context dressed up in their Sunday best and looking pretty. She says, they should be going in protective clothing and wearing crash helmets. Because they're meeting with the living God. We are meeting with the living God. Do we take that lightly? Should we take that lightly? So, we only pray in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the centre and the circumference of our prayer, as of our whole Christian life, of course, but of our prayer. So our prayer is shaped by Jesus. It happens in Jesus you know, that, that, that I just referred to that passage in Romans 8. It's really worth reading through that passage um, a bit more carefully. I'm not going to do that now. But that sense that this is something that God is doing. And God invites us, this incredible invitation for us to participate in his life. To be privy to his heart. To hear what's going on for him, for God. And want to share that with us. So I've laboured this I, uh, because I think it's important. It's important because it's true. It's also important because I am going to talk about some practices that we can use soon. The trouble is if we think we can pick up the practice to make our prayer better or more effective, we are in trouble. It's not up to us. It, it flows out of God's life. It depends on God's initiative. And it's not like we've got to make that happen. It's not like we've got to kind of twist God's arm. God's heart is reaching out to you. Now, God is here to welcome you, if you like, into his lounge. That's how it works. It's not, it's not about us making it work. However, the things that in the spirit God has taught, has given the church over the years, are things that can help us, that can help us 
orientate, to recognise the space we're in, to pick up the signs of God at work. And so we're going to look at some of those soon. So this I'm talking about is a gift. It's a gift, but like with many gifts that we get, we actually have to learn how to enjoy it, how to use it. Not use it in a way of controlling it, but receive its goodness. We need to be trained in it. And so I want to, the, the first thing I, I want to suggest with this is that while encounter is incredibly important, we actually, so that's, that's the initiating, that's God's initiating of prayer. It is actually um, praying in community. That is the first crucial step. We need to learn to pray. So these are some quotes from one of my favourite writers, full stop, but on prayer, uh, Eugene Peterson. Prayer requires community. The community at prayer, not the individual at prayer, is basic and primary. We learn to pray by being led in prayer. Now, does that sound the wrong way around to you? Give me some feedback. Does that, like, is your experience like, okay, I learn to pray because I'm in, in a community, or is it, no, I, I, I come and I kind of say my stuff to God and kind of engage with God that way? Because that, that's how I, I thought about it. Don't, I, I'm not trying to trap you here. I'm trying to say, like, that's, was, that's how I thought about it. But this is, this is learning the riches of prayer, the breadth of prayer, the depth of prayer, the nuances of prayer that we learn in community. Now, when my children were little and they came babbling to me and asking me things, I wouldn't say, well, you don't know how to do this. I love them and I relate to them and so on. But as I grow, as they grow, and as I grow, I want them to learn how to relate in appropriate ways appropriate to our relationship. That's what I'm talking about here. It's not like God is rejecting your prayers in your room at home. I'm not for a moment suggesting that. Of course not. But we want to enter into the riches of what God offers us. We do that in community. And the scripture gives us the starting place. The Psalms are the school of prayer. The Psalms are the school of prayer. And right now I can hear some of you going, What? You, you feel inside, you know, I've read a few of those psalms. Like, what about all that violence and brutality and enemy smashing? Are you, is, that, is that a reaction? Is that a fair reaction? And I'm saying, no, no. The psalms are the way that you're going to get trained in prayer. And, and your, your reaction is completely fair. It's a reaction that we all have in our part of history in our part of the world. The thing is though, we need to think about this. Jesus prayed the Psalms. Jesus prayed the Psalms. 
What does that mean? Think about Jesus praying some of those psalms, those psalms that we don't like, those psalms that we wish were not in the book. Jesus prayed the psalms. And all through history, the church has prayed the psalms. In the monasteries, they prayed through the psalms, 150 psalms, every week. Some monasteries, they pray, pray, pray through them every day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right through history, the psalms have been the training ground for prayer in the church. And you're going, well, still doesn't help me with this, you know, smashing babies and killing enemies and destroying, you know, the heathen and all that stuff that's in the Psalms. But just two brief thoughts. We're not going to be able to fully explore that now, but two brief thoughts because I want to get to the point I'm making here. First is, we sit in this place in the relative safety and comfort of largely middle class New Zealand where we haven't, most of us, experienced the terror and the fear that the people who wrote the Psalms lived with every day. But how, how do you think people in Syria, or Yemen, or West Papua pray at the moment, right today, or South Sudan? Do they pray like, is it kind of really natural for them to play, pray, Lord, I want you to really make my enemy's life great. Even if they come and rape my wife and smash my children, let, their, let them prosper. Do you think they pray like that? No, I don't think they pray like that. So, so part, of our, part of our reaction to the Psalms is to do with our own space in the world, okay? Which is not to say, because you're going to, and you should say to me, but Jesus said we are to love our enemies and to pray for them. Yep, that's right. That's absolutely right. And so the way that I think Jesus prayed the Psalms was to, to stand against the enemies of the human race. Those spiritual forces in the dark places that want to destroy God's purposes and oppose the 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 desire of God to actually experience communion with him, to be in connection with him. And so when I pray the Psalms, I think about those kinds of enemies. I am called to love the people that persecute me and to do me wrong. Absolutely. But I am not called, I am also called to oppose things that oppose God's purposes. But the key point here that I want to make in relation to the Psalms is twofold. It is that the Psalms are communal prayer. They are liturgical prayer. They are not, the, not largely the prayer of the individual. Now you say it talks about the, the, the I in there. Yes. Some of them may have originated there, but the way the Psalms are actually constructed, they're constructed to be the prayer book of the people of God gathered. And there are also, you know, those little selah. Do you see the selah in the Psalms when you read? That's an instruction. We don't actually even understand what it means now, but it's an instruction that has to do with how do you organise doing this in the moment. And it gives the instruction at the beginning to the musicians. This is the tune we use. See, this is prayer that we pray together. Many of the Psalms are antiphonal. That is, 
Somebody will call a part and then other people will respond. Call and response, call and response. Many of the sounds are like that. That's communal prayer. That's the first thing. It's communal. Second thing is, the Psalms teach us that there is nothing, nothing outside what is appropriate, acceptable, important to bring to God. Nothing. See? The Psalms involve deep intimacy and brutal honesty. They involve awed silence and screaming hatred. They involve pain-filled vulnerability and exultant praise. Tears and laughter, boasting and terror, humility and fear all find their place in the Psalms. And so the Psalms train us that everything can come to God. We don't need to put on our best faces to have our masks properly in place and to relate to Jesus as we think he might require us to. We can come swearing and shouting. We can come howling and grovelling. We can come with just over, overwhelming gratitude. But we can come. Peterson says this, Left to ourselves, we are never more selfish than when we pray. But the Psalms that teach us to pray never leave us to ourselves. They embed our prayer in liturgy. Liturgy defends us against the commonest diseases of prayer, the tyranny of our emotions, the isolationism of our pride. So, this is, this is like in Ngati Awa, I've really been strong on us praying the psalms or reading the psalms and using those as a meditation night, we all, and I'm not going to exclude myself on this, find that challenging. And we think, well, when, when there's some other people there, we go, oh, we can't read that psalm, that will upset people. And that's fair enough. I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise about that, because for some people, they, they don't understand what I've just been talking about. But to actually confront these prayers and to say, okay, I don't feel like this, I don't feel like smashing my enemies, but right at the moment, there are brothers and sisters across the world that do, and actually I'm joined to them. I belong to them. So in a sense, I'm praying on behalf of others who are suffering. So I've been trained in praying, engaging with God, but I've also been praying, been trained in belonging to God's people. And that leads me to talk very briefly about liturgy. Now, I wasn't kind of quite sure, you know, I mean, you know, Blueprint has a Pentecostal heritage and I can completely identify with that. And now you're kind of an Anglican deal, so where do I go here, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I, I know you don't use a, a written liturgy as we do now at Ngatiawa, but the thing about liturgy that is, is really important is the same sorts of things I've been saying about the psalm, because the psalms basically are liturgy. That is that it, it, it's given to us. We don't come with us being at the centre. It's something where somebody else stands up and says, let us pray and leads the prayer. And you go, well, I, you know, I don't quite connect with that. But you're not the centre of it. I'm not the centre of it. Actually, we are caught up in the whole purposes of God. 
And so when we come to pray, we are called out of ourselves. And then, this, so this is a place, this is a contemplative place, shall we say. This is a place to recognise that actually it's not just about me. It's crap as I'm feeling today, as lonely as I'm feeling today, yep. And God is not going to ignore that. But there are other people. And I'm called out of myself to those other people. And you know, I realise I have no idea when I started. Yeah, but can somebody tell me? Probably when I should finish. Uh, well, you now? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so, so, so liturgy is given to us. It's something that we are then called into. And then it is something that shapes our hearts and lives. Liturgy has been, are the prayers that have been prayed, that have been honed right through the years. So we are joined to the richness of these prayers. You know, Often in the sorts of, I've been, I've been in my life, I've been in Baptist churches and Pentecostal churches, and the kind of prayers that we pray are, like I, I could kind of predict, this is what it's going to be like. And this is the kind of things we're going to say. Now, I'm not trying to say that's bad. Those prayers were very likely from genuine hearts. I'm not, I have no means of judging that or assessing that. But they were narrow. Very rarely, for example, was there prayer for deep intercession for something that was going on in the world that was absolutely appalling and breaking God's heart, and we just ignored it because we were being happy with Jesus. See? See, these things shape our lives. The liturgy does. You know, we can just blindly go through our lives as though everything's honky-dory, but in the liturgy we call, now it's time to confess our sins. Sheesh. Don't remember any. <laughs> you know, and I, I want to confess that. I want to confess that I often find it hard to confess. Because I just barrel through my life and I don't I just kind of am unconscious of the things that are un, that are disturbing for God, that are breaking my relationship with other people. I just you know stop. It's not that the Holy Spirit wants to smack you down. The Holy Spirit wants to let you live life fully. The Holy Spirit wants to draw you back into relationship with that person that you pissed off. The Holy Spirit wants you to have a clear flow between you and God. That's how we do it. Or gratitude. You know, um, Scotty mentioned that the passive-aggressive thing. And I, I was just so conscious of my life when I got to Ngātiawa how I've kind of got this fairly cynical, analytical, yeah, that was okay, but mm, not so good. You know, there could have been, this could have been better, that could have been better. That kind of attitude to almost everything. And then I was taught in the context of Ngātiawa to thank. And to say, that was awesome. Thank you so much for what you've given to me in that situation. And you see, this is what liturgy does. It calls us up, causes us. I mean, I can't stand liturgy where you just kind of go, I just rolling through it. That's a waste of time, mate. This is about encounter. This is about the Holy Spirit. This is about what God is doing when He wants to meet with His people. So I'm not asking you to do that. 
what I'm asking you to do is use the riches that have been developed in these in these kinds of prayer. Um, it's like like an architecture or a framework that enable us to enter into the fullness of what God wants. The key point of liturgy is communion, or liturgy, or, or Eucharist, communion or Eucharist. This is the absolute centre of it, and the things that I've been talking about there. But you know, I, I, I don't know how. You, I mean, I've got a bit of an idea how you do um, communion here, and I, I'm, I'm, I have got no kind of agenda to push about the way it should happen. Right? So I don't care whether you do the kind of brethren breaking bread style, the kind of um, I don't know Presbyterian handing around. Or the Anglican high cap, high Anglo Catholic, you know, smells bells and stuff. I don't care. That's not the issue for me. This is the issue. It's not just a little ritual that we go through. This is a place for contemplative engagement with God, for allowing the Holy Spirit to reach into our lives. Here, when we hold up this bread and this cup. Is the one who cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're feeling like that, all alone and abandoned, you can. You can ponder on the fact that Jesus has been there for you. And if you're wrestling with injustice if you're just going this is freaking stink and it's terrible and I want to do something about it and I'm angry about it and I want to go for it this bread in this cup is the one who came and suffered the worst injustice because he was completely completely guiltless but he did it to make justice and his way of making justice is the right way. Or it's the place where there's inclusion, where people are drawn in. Anybody can come, come, come. Do you feel like you're not you're you're kind of on the outside? You're not a decent person, you stink a bit, whatever it is, and you can't be around other people? Come, come, come and enjoy the feast with the master. And I, I mean, I'm touched three things. You know, I could go on and on and on. I won't, but I won't go on and on and on about the multiple things that come here that call us to contemplate, to have our hearts open before Jesus. And most of all, most of all, it is that Jesus Himself gives Himself to us. not just eating bread and juice. You are seeing the crucified, risen Lord who enables you to live as his and before him. Without the Eucharist, it is very easy to drift into a spirituality that is dominated about 
dominated by ideas about Jesus instead of receiving life from Jesus. <clears throat> when Karen and I were in our mid-twenties, we'd been married for about four years, I think, simultaneously but separately, we, we just had this thing growing in us to deepen our prayer life. We just thought, what we've got is cool, but it's not what we want. It's, it's not what we think we're supposed to have. And so what happened then was that we, my aunt was actually involved in a group called Spiritual Growth Ministries, and we got in contact with this group which ran week-long retreats, normally led by a Catholic priest or a Catholic sister or an Anglican priest or, or whatever. And we were opened up into this vast world of these things that God had taught, had given the church that enabled us to engage with God. And I, you know, I think that, that, that experience, those experiences, had been really profound for me. Just a couple of examples. I remember, so we were, one of the things we were taught to do in prayer was to use our imaginations. So we went away, I was in my room, I think I was in my room, and I was just before God, and suddenly I was sitting, you know one of those big swings, you know they've got a kind of canopy, a seat swing like that, big one? You sit in it and kind of, that's where you cruise out in the afternoon, sunny afternoon, and I was sitting on one of those swings with Jesus. Jesus was right there. It was as vivid as anything for me. And he and I were having a conversation. And then Mary came along. I'm going to shock some people right now. Mary came along. Jesus' mother came along. And Jesus said to me, John, I want to give you my daughter Mary. I'm a good Protestant boy, okay? None of this Mary stuff. But Jesus gave me memory. Not that I could control her. And I've pondered on that a lot. And I think about the way that Mary herself engaged with God. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary pondered on these things in her heart. Mary was the first disciple. Mary was the one who exemplified what it means to belong to Jesus and follow Jesus. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting excited now. That was really profound for me. I was just sitting there and, hey, this starts happening for me. Now, you might have had experiences like that. I hope you have. But one of the things I think is really important about this is that we actually need to create space in our lives to allow God to take initiative to show us things, to speak to us, to open up things for us that otherwise we just go blasting past. Alright, a few minutes about silence or solitude. Remember, this is not a technique. This is like a gift that Jesus gives. It's not going to ensure a particular outcome. It is something that you receive and allow God to do as God wishes. But here's the thing. If I asked you to stop and be still and quiet, if you're anything like me, 
what's going to happen is that you're just going to have this roaring rush of noise going around in your heart and your mind. The things that you want to do that you should have done. That's that and the next thing. What's happening? What happened? This to say nothing of. Then you also become aware of that annoying tick of the clock and that car that's going past and this and that and thing. And you're going, I you know, I'm trying to be quiet to listen to Jesus. But that's how it works. Henry Nowen says, without solitude, it is impossible to live the spiritual life. It might be a slight overstatement, but I think there's some validity in it. We, in our world in particular, and you live in the city even more, and we live with the kind of cluttered lives that I'm guessing pretty much all of you have even more, Shut up. And open your heart for life to God. Now, what about all those screaming thoughts? Well, that's hard, eh? That's hard. But when you live, this is Jesus' gift, this is Jesus' thing. You am not going to try and make this work. I'm not, you know, it's not like, I've got to get this sorted. This is, I want to be here before God. Okay, God, you know I've got these thoughts. Can you deal with them, please? Okay, so this thought comes up. Okay, can I just hand that over to you, God? He's this way. Can I just hand that over to just, just for this time, eh? I think God takes those things. Now this, you know, if I said you went home tonight and did this, it, you probably think, oh, it doesn't work. This, this practice, like all of these practices, are long-term practices. They're things that we need to do frequently and regularly in our lives. See, you know, people come to me out to go on a retreat and they carry a box of books. That's cool. I love reading books. I read all the time. But actually, it's not just about getting more stuff in here because we've got Breaking heaps of stuff in here. It's like this. So stop. Stop all your rushing around. Stop all your activity. Stop all your anxious thinking. Stop. And let Jesus have a chance. God is always wanting to speak to us. Honestly, I believe God is always wanting to speak to us. We don't give him half a chance. If you do this, and you do this stopping, you're probably going to go up to sleep. Oh man, failed again. I've gone to sleep when I was listening to God. No, no, no. You probably will go to sleep because your mind's too freaking full up. You're too stunned. So you need that space from God. God's okay with that. He says he gives rest to his beloved. But that's the that's the system you get into a place where actually you can go, Oh, I'm so glad to be with you, God. But that in itself doesn't go, okay, so now I can wait. Whoa, I've had awesome revelations. Now I'm gonna do this. Woo! It's gonna, I'm gonna change the world. But sometimes, and somebody wrote about that time of silence, that half hour of silence, or ten minutes, or whatever, 
is a time of uselessness. Way, way more often than not, when I'm silent, I can't wait going, what was the point of that? Near nothing. Don't feel nothing. Nothing new's come out of that. And I'm tempted because of that thing that I told you about at the beginning to go, oh, get that one away. But um, as you do this over time, you get to hear. Well, actually, I want to say something more than that. I think that God works in my life even when I'm mostly when I'm not aware of it, in the secret, in the depths, below my conscious ability to handle, handle it. And I think that I'm therefore resourced to keep going after Jesus because of that. Sometimes God does speak. Sometimes I'm in chapel, it's time of silence, and there are just ideas. I'm going, well, I wish I bought a notebook. You know, I know with my brain I'm going to forget this by the time I get back. You know, it's like, sometimes it's like that, but most often it's not. Okay. I'm going to do, I, I was going to do three things, but time's gone way past what I intended. I'm just going to do one other thing now, which is kind of a, a continuation of this. And that is to talk about examining, which is kind of in line with what we've been talking about, and I think it's good to do. And I'll just briefly explain it, then we can do it. So, um, the examiner was developed by Ignatius of Loyola, who was the founder of the Jesuit, the Society of Jesus. He was a soldier. He was a dandy. I don't even know what a dandy is, but he was a, a womanizer. He dressed poncy, thought he was pretty hot, you know. And then he got blasted by a cannonball and he was convalescing for a long time. And while he was convalescing, he, he, there were only two books for him to read. They were religious books. He wasn't religious at all. I mean, he was religious in one sense, but he wasn't. He wasn't interested in this stuff at all. He started reading these stories of the saints and he realizes something's going on in his heart that changes him. Then. As a result of that, God grabbed hold of his life and completely reorientated him. And the, the Jesuit order had been profoundly significant across the world. Anyway, one of the things that, that uh, Frank, um, Ignatius realized is that our lives are just filled up with disordered affections, with things that keep on twisting us off path, going somewhere else, things that make us want to do stuff that's unhelpful for our lives, unhelpful for our, our walking with God. Disordered desires. And so what he developed was the exam, which was an opportunity, and they did it twice a day, to stop and with Jesus to reflect on what's been going on. Now there are two elements to it. There's the examen, what's called the examen of consciousness. The examen of consciousness and the examen of conscience. How this works, it's kind of like, think about it like this. Sit on a couch with Jesus and say, okay, let's just think back over the last day or the last few days, last week. Jesus, can you point out to me places where you have been at work, maybe that I've missed? Can you help me see where you've been at work in and around my life? It's not like, okay, I'm going to go through and go think, okay, at 9 o'clock it was like this, at 9 o'clock it was like this. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying go through with a, a, a tooth comb. 
Jesus, what, what do you want to show me about what's been going on in my life, what you've been doing? Because, like I said, it's so easy to miss this stuff. And then out of that, and Jesus speaks to us. I believe he speaks to us. Out of that comes, Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you did in that situation. Thank you so much for how you're working in the life of my family. I, am so, I just realised how much life is not up to me. Actually, you're at work all the time and I just get to get in on it. Hmm? And then the second part of the, ex, the, the examine of conscience say, okay, Jesus, show me where I missed you and I missed your way. Help me understand. Where I've, I just missed out. I could have had something different and this is what's going on. And help me understand what you think about that and what to do about that. And so out of that comes the, the discipline of confession. So that's this sort of stopping that I talked about earlier and see. So confession is not, oh, miserable sinner. You know, that mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. I mean, that's part of it, but it's way, way more than that. It is that we get to see things truly. Confession, the Greek word is homologio. Homo, same. Logio speak. Speak the same. Say the same thing as God does about this situation. Not, not my justification, not my rationalization. No, what does God say? Okay, that's how it is. That's what confession is. So that practice, and I really, really want to strongly recommend that you do this as a, a starting contemplative practice, if you like, for say in an evening. Ignatius would say lunchtime in the evening. Saying anything. And just go, okay, Jesus, show me. You may, you may be time after time you think, I don't know, I don't get anything. Believe me, I am convinced there will be time to go, wow, oh my, oh thank you, Jesus. So we're going to stop now, just for a few minutes. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to pray, ask you. Um, to do this, just to say to Jesus, okay, show me Jesus, you can think about what it might be last week, might be today, I don't know, up to you. And allow Jesus to speak to you. Allow Jesus to shine his loving light on your life. <coughs> and respond to him. So Jesus, I know you are here with us all. With each of us, not each of us. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us now to be aware of you and to listen to you.